Good morning, and I welcome you as well to our service this morning. We're glad for everyone's present, and especially our visitors. We're glad you're here. Come back again. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 20. And we're going to read a few verses here. Let's see, where should we start? Let's start at chapter, verse um, 19. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, before the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Somebody want to explain verse 23 to me? Whose sins have you recently remitted or retained? The, uh, the impetus for this looking at this subject goes back a few months, I actually believe now. One random Tuesday afternoon or so, um, Justin called me. He was on call that day. He was uh, at the, at the uh, ambulance, what do you call it, the ambulance hole in the wall or whatever, and he was uh, he was having a conversation with a um, a co EMT whatever, and this uh, person was a uh, a practicing and I guess fairly bona fide uh, Catholic I guess, and um, they had this discussion on the on this particular verse. Um, his friend was uh, was saying that um, this is where the Catholic dogma for confession of sins to a priest would be um, would be based upon. So Justin called me and said, what say you? And I sat there with my tongue in my mouth and I didn't know. I didn't know what to think of it. Uh, I can't deny that this verse is here and Jesus obviously spoke these words. They're in red letters in my Bible anyway. What does this mean? How am I supposed to um, how am I supposed to apply this verse today? How are you supposed to? Was this verse only applicable to the disciples, or was is this something we need to uh, to um, consider today? I guess the uh, the first my first step in trying to figure out what this meant is to um, it piqued my interest on exactly what the Catholic view of this is. And so I did a bit of research, and I, I came across a, a Catholic man who has quite an extensive website that attempts to explain Catholic dogma um, on his website. And I was interested to hear his explanation of it. And I will say this, 
and this is a little bit of an aside, but I'll just say it right here. I think my research has done this for me anyway. It has, uh, it has, um, put a bit of caution for me, for me personally anyway, to just automatically assume that I know exactly what any other given faith believes about a thing, okay? Uh, we get up here, I think, a little too, should I just <laughs> use the word cocky? Maybe that's, maybe that's not a good word, but I think sometimes we assume that we know how um, any other given denomination believes on a thing, and we know why what we believe is better, okay? Now, I want us all to be convinced that what we do, what we practice, our doctrines are soundly based on the principles of God's words. Because if they're not, we need to change our doctrine. We have to. But let's just be careful that we don't assume or um, attempt to exposit in, in great measure on things that we really don't know much about. Because as I listen to this particular person expound on the Catholic way of thinking, it was, and I say this carefully, but it was closer to what I would have thought than I would have thought I would have thought, okay? <laughs> um, so anyway, let's just lay that down for now, but I'm just throwing that out as a, as, as a caution. What is, the, what is the answer to this verse? Well, the first thing I'd like to establish is that when it comes to this thing of forgiveness of sins, I, I can't do much for you, and you can't do much for me. If, if you want your sins forgiven, you have to go to Jesus Christ for that to happen. And, and therein, I think, lies the, the point of the conversation. Must I go to Dennis whenever I wish to confess my sins? Must I go to Dennis or, or to whoever? Must I go to a person? And I think that's maybe where the misunderstanding lies sometimes in, um, in, in this thing. Um, if this person, this Catholic person, was indeed giving the Catholic dogma as it truly is, he would say, no, no, indeed, you have to go to God. Um, the only, this exercise of, of um, confessing to a priest is just good for us spiritually to actually tell somebody else about our problem. So I don't know if that's official or not. That's the way he put it. And just that little, that little part of the thing, I, I can agree with. Um, indeed, I can't forgive you of your sins. That happens to, you have to go to God and, and talk about that. But indeed, if you're struggling with a sin or sins, or if I am, there is some spiritual good can come out of it if I talk to you about that. And we'll get into that just a little bit later, how that works. But do, I don't know how much I need to expose on this. I, I think I'm talking to the, to the choir here, but there's many examples in the scripture that Jesus is truly the person that forgives sins. If you look through the Gospels, there was two uh, incidents that come to my mind right away. The man that was sick of palsy in Matthew 9 and the sinful woman that came to Simon's house in Luke 7. Both of these individuals, um, in those particular instances, Jesus said, I forgive you of your sins. And both of these, the audience in both of those situations were shocked at, at this. They said, 
this man proclaims he can forgive sins. And they, 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 they were offended by it. They said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus didn't dispute that. What they, the connection that was not made in these people's minds was that Jesus was God. That was the problem. Okay. Paul in his writings, um, Romans 8, he goes, um, who is he that condemn, condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us? Ephesians. He talks about how we are predestined to the adoption of children by Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. First John, he talks about this a lot, a lot John does in his uh, first letter there. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I think I'm going to stop there. I have more references. I think I've, I rest my case. I don't think I need to convince you today that um, Jesus Christ is indeed the avenue we have to take for the forgiveness of sins. And if you really want a, 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 um, a real in-depth um, reading on that, read through the book of Hebrews again. Over and over and over, uh, the Hebrew writer points out that the, the high priest that we have in Jesus so far per, sur, surpasses the Old Testament high priest. And he, he uh, tells his audience there to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's look a little bit closer here at this, at this uh, group of verses that we read and see if we can just just unpack this just a little bit more. So in verse 21, Jesus says to his disciples here, he says, Peace be to you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So I just stopped and pondered on that a little bit. What what did Jesus tell his disciples or, or the people that were willing to listen to him as, as he preached when he was here on earth? Why did he come? And here are some, here are some um, different references I came up with that Jesus specifically said, this is why I came. The one I think we probably would uh, think of the quickest, I am come to seek those which are lost, to seek and save those which are lost. Uh, that's why he has come. Another point, he says, I am come that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. So he, he came to give us abundant life. He says another place, I am not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And then there's uh, a, a verse that um, maybe is a little bit different. He tells his disciples at one point, he said, I am not come to bring peace, but I am come to bring a sword. And in that particular um, context, He's talking about how the people that make a decision to follow Jesus, sometimes that's going to bring conflict with people they love, and it's not going to go real well because of that particular um, stance that they take. Now, there's two verses that I'd like to point out specifically that again talk about why Jesus came. And the one of these is in John 
Jesus says this. He says, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which might not, I'm sorry, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And then there's another one in John 5.30 that goes like this. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. Okay, so he's now qualifying his judgment that he talked about in uh, John 9 there that I read just previously. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of the Father which sent me. Okay, so if you if you take those two verses and you put them together... You now, you now can make a, a pretty firm case that part of Jesus coming to the world was to set a standard. And that standard that he set and exposed and presented to people was a standard that was firmly based on the Father's will. And whatever the Father's will was, that is the, that is the standard he held before people. And he was willing to, in his words, he used that. And because he did that, he just by almost default became a judge. I present what my father, my father's will is. You accept it or you reject it, but it's here and I, that's where I stand. And maybe it's more like you judge yourself because of where you line up with God's will. That's maybe a better way to, to put it. At least we can say this, that as Jesus came here to help us poor humans find our way to God, in that process, there was always a clearing that took place. Some people accepted it, some people did not. And there was that, um, there was that judgment. Okay, look at verse uh, 22 now. After he says this, he goes, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Alright? And, um, a few years ago, I had a, a quite an extended series on on this thing of the Holy Spirit and how He works in our lives. But I think that the uh, the way these the how do I say this the order and what Jesus in which Jesus said this is important. Okay, because I'm sending you the way my Father sent me. Now you have to receive the Holy Spirit. And isn't this exactly the order that Jesus' life read? The Father sent him into the world, but he did not begin his ministry until he had received the Spirit. After that, after he had received the Spirit, you remember how he went out into the wilderness, he was there 40 days in the Spirit, it says, and then he came back and he, he began his ministry. And again, it says when he began his ministry, he did it by the beck, of, beck and call of the, of the Spirit. A person that is without the Spirit... Need read no further. Verse 23 does not apply to a person that is without the Spirit. I don't believe. But then he goes, he goes on and he gives this, these, this sentence here that uh, we want to consider this morning about this retention and remission of sin. If you look at the, um, at the last words of Jesus in all the Gospels, if we take the time to go back and do that, and I'm not going to take that time, but it's interesting, you know, we remember the Great Commission, but I, I'd like to remind us that right before Jesus gave the Great Commission, he, he prefaces it with saying that all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And because that happened, 
you can go on and you can preach the gospel. And he's implying, by implication, he's saying, I'm passing that on to you. And because I'm passing that on to you, this is what you need to do with it. This is how that power and authority should be um, executed in your life. And if you remember also with me, when Jesus sent out the disciples in Matthew 10, it says there again in verse 1 that he says, I'm giving you power and authority, and here's, here's a few things I want you to do as you go forth and you preach, preach the gospel. And one of those things, if you remember with me, he somewhat assigns them to do a bit of judgment as he's going, as they're going from village to village. He said, if they receive you, let your peace there. If they won't, shake off the dust and move on. Um, in other words, some discernment was taking place. Mark 16, again, he, he uh, talks about the giving them the authority to affirm or dismiss those who would or would not follow Jesus. And in Luke 24, he, in a nutshell, he says that because of, of who he was, who Jesus was, we can preach repentance and remission of sin. So I think the takeaway from those last assignments that Jesus gave there in, in the four Gospels is that uh, our primary job, their primary job, our primary job as well, is to preach Jesus to the world. That's the way the world, that's the way you and I on, on an individual level receive remission of sins. And that's exactly what the disciples preached. And I'll just give you two quick examples. In Acts 2, when Peter was preaching that first sermon there after the Holy Spirit fell on those people, and these people were just stricken and smitten with their sins, and they said to Peter, well, what shall we do about this? Peter didn't say, well, line up in front of me, and um, and let's get busy and get some confessing done here. That's not what he said. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Why? For the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And way back in one of the last chapters of Acts, after Paul is is on his way to Caesar and basically on his way to death, it says this, and I'm just breaking into verse 20, but showed first un, unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of, of Judea and then to the Gentiles, and here's what he showed them, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So again, that was the gospel that was preached. Repent, turn to God, and do works that match that. It is the record of the disciples and apostles and acts that they always directed repentance toward God. That is the answer to life's great issue, and it still is. But now there's another interesting set of verses, and when I when I picked up any given Bible in, in the house there, and I would read this this John twenty twenty three, it would instantly give me two cross references. And you probably know what they are. One of them is in Matthew 16. We can just turn to that real quick. This is when uh, Jesus is addressing Peter, I believe, in this context. Matthew 16 and verse 19. And again, I'm just breaking right in here. But Jesus... Peter had made this confession of who Jesus was. 
And now Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'll just flip over two chapters to chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 15 through 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he would not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear thee, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Historically, I concluded These two readings and the reading there in John, that verse in John, has been kind of lumped together as a package of of instructions that are similar. It seems like there is authority given to, and I think this is this is where where it's important to 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 understand where the, the authority is given. In Matthew, in these two readings, the idea of the church comes up immediately. It's not one person, but it's it's in the context of the body that this comes up, this binding and loosing. And I really think if you look in John 20, 23, if you look at the pronouns used, it's used plural, okay? It's not one person. It's a, it's a plural pronoun that's used there. I think another thing that needs to, another point that needs to be made, if you would read an amplified Bible, and because I can't read Greek, I must depend on these tools, but in the amplified, it reads like this, thou shalt bind on earth what has already been bound in heaven, and you shall loose on earth which, that which has already been loosed in heaven, all right? That puts a really a bit of a different spin on the way this is read. So let me explain this. I, I think what Jesus is saying here in in Matthew, the two accounts here in Matthew and in John, is that there is an assignment given to the church to make sure that those that proclaim faith that are part of the church are living up to God's standard. And the church has the authority and actually the responsibility to bind and loose, quote, quote, according to the standard that's already been established in heaven. So in other words, we can as a body decide that it's okay to, I don't I don't even know what example to give. Um, you know, whatever principles are here in God's word, we can't say they don't apply anymore. We, we just don't have that. We just don't have the right to do that because it's already been bound in heaven. Now, what I think, I think that uh, it's clear that from from Acts, and I think we base that here on these on these particular readings, 
the church does have a responsibility to make a bit of application to principles that are already there. Uh, the principles are somewhat big picture. Application is the smaller application of that principle. But those applications can never uh, supersede or exceed or detract from the principles of God. And by all means, we can't just arbitrarily say, well, you know what, we live in 2020, and some of these principles that are in the Word of God just simply don't apply anymore. we, we got to just find a different way to... we just got to, you know, we got to ignore it because we live in 2020. We can't do that. Those things have already been bound in heaven. And I think we have some examples of how the early church maybe applied this teaching in John 20, 23 of remitting and retention of sins. And I'm going to give these for your consideration and um, see what you think. But um, if you go, as I went through the book of Acts, you know, I came across passages like Ananias and Sapphira, um, where Peter uh, made a judgment call. I mean, he pronounced their wickedness. He exposed that and he said, this can't be. And uh, we know that story. There was instant death and judgment, and and uh, things happened very quickly there. But, you know, what Peter was saying is, this thing of lying to God, that's a principle that's been established in heaven, and we're not going to overlook that. That's not going to happen here. Uh, we are not going to remit that sin. That sin will be retained. There's going to be some judgment for that sin that you have um, you have decided to hide from the, from the body. We also have the example in um, in Acts eight of uh, Simon and the the sorcerer and Peter. Peter had made the determination that Simon was not in the will of God, and he proceeded to tell him that in uh, in no uncertain terms. He said, "Your heart is not right in the sight of God, and I perceive you are in the gall of wickedness and the bond of iniquity." Uh, he meant no words. He he told uh, he told this this man exactly where he felt. He was in relationship to God. But if you remember there in that story as well, Simon said to Peter, he seemed to respond appropriately, and he said, would you, would you pray for me? That's what he asked. He asked Simon or Peter there to, to pray for him. And uh, I believe Peter did. Then we have uh, the examples in Acts 8 and Acts 10. In Acts 8, we have Philip and the eunuch. In Acts 10, we have Peter and Cornelius. And in these instances, the apostles perceived that these people were sincere and that they had met the criteria for being um, a part of the family of God and, and of the church there in that day. And so they pronounced their blessing on them. And, um, and these people gave the needed testimony of living faith in their lives. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians now, just for another uh, passage that probably sheds a bit of light on this. Church at Corinth was just rife with uh, issues, and it is a... Uh, a book that we sometimes turn to to figure out how to deal with quote-unquote issues, I guess. But in chapter 5, and I guess I won't, uh, I won't take the time to read the whole chapter, but I'll read a few verses here. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily 
as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already. All right, so Paul's saying he, he has made a judgment already. As though I were present, concerning him who has done this deed. So now here's the assignment he gives to the church. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my sp- and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such and one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now jump down to verse 12. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In the NIV, that verse 12 reads like this. What business is it of mine to judge those that are outside the church? Are you not to judge those that are inside? I'm just going to condense this chapter into this. This is the point I want to draw from here. Obviously, the church here was tolerating sin. I mean, they were. It shouldn't have even been that hard of a call. But they were. This person was there. Apparently, he was a a brother in good standing in the church. And Paul said, this kind of sin shouldn't be even one time named among you. In fact, it's it's worse than they do out in the world, he says. And he calls them on the carpet and he said, it's time for you to, to exercise the power, the authority that Jesus has given to you. And he says that in verse 4. He talks about when you're gathered together in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, You should deliver such a one into Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit could be saved. This is a sermon in itself, and I'm not going to go there. But let's just say this. What rises to the top here to me is that the power came from Jesus. There was judgment that needed to be made, and it wasn't that difficult. In this situation, it was actually fairly obvious what the problem was. And he says that it should be done when they were together. In other words, it wasn't any one man that was supposed to do this. He said, when you are gathered together, the the body had to be on the same page. And he said, this isn't that hard. This should not be that difficult for you to make this this particular decision. And then he kind of chides them a bit in verses 12 and 13. He says, you you mean you you, you can't even judge this? This is too difficult for you? And uh, he, he, he somewhat insinuates that um, that they needed to be taking their responsibility more seriously than what they were. Again, going back to the Matthew 18, this had already been bound in heaven. Okay, there, th- this this was not something that we were splitting hairs about. It needed to be bound on earth because it had already been bound in heaven, and they were somewhat neglecting their responsibility. And I think I should take the word somewhat away. They were neglecting their responsibility. Okay. So what are some other passages that might guide us in this matter of remission and retention of sin? And I'd just like to just draw a few other principles here that might be helpful. I think in this this business of sin... Um, there's two ways to look at sin. You can say all sin is sin. 
Sin is sin. I don't care if I go out and shoot someone or if I steal a lollipop from the grocery store. Those two things are sin and they are gonna, they're gonna stain my soul and send me to hell. Um, let's be careful with that. While it is true that all sin is sin, there does seem to be degrees of sin. And I say that because there's three lists in the Bible and we won't, we won't read them, but they're there. That Paul goes through and he says, he lists these terrible things like fornication and adultery and murder and drunkenness and, you know, these, these things that are just easy calls. And he says, people that do this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, it's just an easy, straightforward, not that hard of a call to make. And then you have the passage in John. Again, John seems to, to delve quite deeply in this issue, in this matter. In John, in 1 John 5.16, he talks about if we see a person that sins a sin that's unto death, and I think those sins that are unto death would be those ones that are categorized, that, such as I just mentioned. These are immediate cut off from God. He said, that's one thing. But he said, then there is a sin that is not unto death. There are sins that are not unto death. And perhaps that's more like the stealing of the lollipop. It wasn't right, but nobody died, okay, or, or something like that. And the 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 um, or, or perhaps I maybe maybe the stealing of the lollipop isn't a good one. Maybe I just uh, told a little lie to somebody or you know something like that. Just something. It's minor, and yet it is a big deal. And I think in those particular situations, it's more that there's a strain put. There's a strain there. And that strain has to be, it's not like we ignore it, we take care of it, but the, the, um, the effects of that aren't nearly as great as if something else would, if, if something much greater would happen. So I think in this thing of, of sins, we should consider the infraction that is, um, that, yeah, that is, that is there. How, what is the sin? Is it a, is it a, a big one, quote, quote, a little one. And, I, and I'm afraid that I'm just, I'm confusing everybody here, but I'm, I'm hoping you're mature enough to understand what I'm saying. I think the other thing that we need to, to consider is the, what effect does the infraction of, of my infraction or somebody else's infraction have on the testimony of the church? If the testimony of the church has been compromised, it seems like there is fairly clear biblical instruction that that is related to in a different way than if the testimony of the church isn't compromised as much. In the in this in this particular case in, in Corinth, the testimony of the church was severely compromised. I mean when it's said of a church that your sin that you do is worse than they do in New York City, that's pretty bad. That, that is not a, a great testimony of the church, for the church. And I would just point out a few references um, here that maybe speak to this a bit. In the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus that a man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, should be rejected. Knowing that such is subverted and sinneth being condemned, being condemned of himself. So there again, it seems like when, when Paul, or, yeah, when Paul says that he's condemned of himself, the infraction is fairly clear. 
Second Timothy, he tells them to withdraw themselves from every brother that walks disorderly. So put a bit of a distance there. In First Timothy 5, um, not a, a real go-to verse for us, but it is there. It says this, Them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Um, but then he says this as a qualifier. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things, and here's the qualifier, without preferring one another and without partiality. In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, it doesn't it isn't based on where the status is in church or how much money is put in the offering or any of these things. If there's sin and it needs to be rebuked, it doesn't matter who it is, it gets treated the same way. But then I think there's a there's a tempering that should be considered as we uh as we consider those three injunctions. In Galatians six one Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest ye also be tempted. And in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. I think if you just put those five verses together, I think we can clearly deduct that the church has been given authority to direct to those who have fallen into a sin for a restoration process and to ascertain the sincerity of those claiming a relationship with Christ. And I really think that's the keys of the kingdom and the retention and remission of sin. I can't as an individual do it, but as a group, we're called to do it. You know, I, I sat there and reflected on this for a minute, and I thought, you know, have I in my lifetime ever seen a, a situation where these five verses I just read were related well to uh, an individual that had perhaps fallen into sin in some way or was walking disorderly, you might say. You know, and I, I reflected on Matthew 18, and I, you know, Matthew 18 is a is a scripture that's oft referred to, and perhaps not oft well practiced. Uh, that that would be my uh, particular um, conclusion, I guess. And I thought about why that might be, why that, at least in my experience, has been, you know, somewhat the uh, my experience, I guess. And I think perhaps the reason is, is because in my generation, in the time that I live and you live today, it is so easy if a person is, now I'm, I'm talking in the context of a spiritual body. I'm not talking in the context of an apostate church. So I want to clarify that. But in the context of a spiritual body of believers that is attempting for all they have to follow the Bible as clearly and as well as they can, and you have this brother that's perhaps walking disorderly or has fallen into a sin. In too many instances, it's far too easy for that person to just leave. He just leaves and he goes over here. And generally when he leaves and goes over here, he's accepted over here. And so the opportunity for this to work out well seldom exists because in, in, 
Paul is calling here that, yes, you call out the sin, but at the end of the day, we're not here just to make a public spectacle out of somebody or to, um, you know, trounce them or use them as this example of, of whatever, but it's restoration. That's what the ultimate goal is. And then, you know, the question always is, well, was the action taken too harsh or was the person who decided to leave, was he just belligerent and unworkable? And often the water is very murky. The truth is frequently not clear and the results are seldom good. And I think that's just kind of where we find ourselves sometimes. But um, I don't know. That, that, that was just kind of my conclusion as I, as I pondered it. And I'm not saying it never does. It, it never does work out well. Uh, but it seems like it's, it's something we struggle with, perhaps, sometimes. I was also interested to, uh, as, I, as I was doing a bit of research, how that in, in times past, it seems like conservative Christian churches, and I, I'm going quite broad here, um, at least um, not just necessarily the Mennonite churches, but uh, conservative Christian churches 100 plus years ago probably took these injunctions a bit more seriously and maybe dealt with them better than we do. And, and, and maybe that's not even true because it's always easy to magnify and say the past, just they just had it better back then. And that may not even be true. But I, I recently read a, a piece by a Baptist uh, minister, pastor, and his, his treatise that he wrote was, was, this, was titled this, The Demise of Church Discipline. And he was decrying the fact that in his circles, that he, uh, his denomination, there would have been a time that every year the, the church would have got together for a few days for a, a, a time that they called days of discipline. And, and these, the whole congregation would come together and they would, they would wrestle through issues that were facing the church and they would, um, they would deal with sin that was in the camp, perhaps. And I don't know how that all worked out, but it was something they did. And he was decrying the fact that we have come so far the other way that that seems so antiquated and out of date that we don't even have a remote, um, a remote semblance of that even happening anymore. So it seems like, you know, there's either this shift where the church either completely ignores or relegates the decision of remission and retention of sin to uh, the authorities of the body. On the one hand, they ignore it, or, the, or on the other hand, I should say, they, they relegate the decision to the authorities of the body, and both seem to have unhappy results long term. One other passage that perhaps we should look at before we close, and that's in uh, James 5.16. Um, in the, in the uh, little Catholic exposition that I, I looked at, the, the man brought this into it, and it's a very, very familiar verse. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In the context, that is, that is right, tucked right there in the middle of the, of uh, what we would call the, the, uh, ordinance of anointing with oil. 
So, so what do I make of that? And this is where the, the Catholic man was saying, well, see, there you, you have it. It's a good exercise to confess your faults. But, you know, as I pondered that, I was like, there's a couple things that, that kind of, kind of stood out to me. So it does use the word faults, which seems to be a bit, um, if you look at it in the Greek, it is, it is indeed translated sins other places. So I don't want to say that it's not, but it seems like the, the thought is, um, perhaps if I have a besetting sin, a sin that I just really wish to, uh, it just has the better of me, and I just really wish I could overcome that. I really think that James is saying, you know, if you would go to a brother and you would confess that thing, what does he say then? He says, then you can pray for one another. And he says, that effectual fervent prayer is going to put you miles down the road that perhaps you're just having a hard time getting the next foot accomplished. So I guess, I guess I would say this verse here in James, in my, in my opinion, um, means exactly that. Um, we perhaps do not exercise this well, and perhaps we would do ourselves a favor to exercise it more. You know, I have a fault, I have a, a, a problem, and if I could tell somebody about that, and that person could pray for me, what would it do for my spiritual life? What if we all did that? What would that do for the spiritual vibrancy of the congregation? That's just a question I ask. James' conclusion there in verses 19 and 20, he says, If any of you do err from the truth and someone converts him, let him know that he that converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is, if way back when, when I'm still picking lollipops off the, the, the thing at the store, and I know this is a besetting sin, and I tell Warren that I'm having this problem, and he prays for me, and I quit picking up lollipops, perhaps that will save me from having the sin of stealing Lamborghini someday. You know, I, I nipped it in the bud. And so I took care of that sin that was not unto death before it led to something that is unto death. I don't know, maybe that doesn't make sense to you, but I wonder if that's perhaps what James is saying here when he talks about hiding a multitude of sins, preventing a multitude of sins from expressing themselves in the future. We must close. Did we learn anything this morning? I'll let you decide that. But for me, I would just like to to challenge us that indeed Jesus is the only way we can find remission of sin. All right? But I think there is some health in A, confessing our faults one to another, and in B, when the church takes its God-given responsibility to keep the camp clear from sin. And to neglect either one of those things, I think we'll just it will just put a cloud over our spiritual vibrancy personally and our spiritual vibrancy collectively as well. And may God help us to that end. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and I thank you so much for your word and the clarity of it. And I thank you that um, you have given us so much direction in life. And um, Lord, we recognize that we all are sinners that are saved by grace, called to be saints. And yet, Lord, we know that uh, at times we have faults, we have sins that beset us. And Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, honest with you. 
and where we need to to confess those things to make them right so we can have a clear relationship with you and with our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray you would bless this congregation this morning, everybody in attendance, and may we uh, all grow in your grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.